is a wonderful teacher. And I think I can say that on almost any objective basis, he knows how to teach, he knows how to instruct. And we looked at last week, one of his strengths as a teacher was his ability to use analogies, his ability to help us relate these concepts to other concepts. And uh, today we're going to see him do something that he does fairly often, at least I can think of off the top of my head he does throughout the book of Romans, which any good teacher does, and that is to anticipate objections. If you've ever taken any kind of public speaking class or any kind of pedagogical training, teaching training, you will learn that one of the things you're supposed to do when you prepare a presentation or make a defense is you want to try to anticipate, well, what are people going to be objecting to this? And you want to try to answer those objections before they're even allowed to be raised. He wants to anticipate objections. He wants to anticipate them and know them so that he covers all of his bases. And so, he does that here in Galatians chapter 3, and he, last week we saw, very clearly established that the purpose of the law was never to justify us. That was never its purpose. God did not give a covenant with Moses so that human beings would have a way to get into heaven. The law was never the bridge that takes us from earth into salvation. And so, natural questions come from this, namely... So then why did he give it at all? If Paul's going to come down to the people in Galatia through his letter and tell us, you misunderstood the law, that's not what the law is for, that's not what the law is for, that's not what the law is for, well then what is the law for? Why did he give it at all? Other questions Paul knows are going to come is he's spent last week talking about how the law is going, can do nothing but condemn us. All the law can do is curse us. And so the question becomes, well, okay, then fine. But you told us that the Abrahamic covenant was all about God blessing us. And now you're saying, but we're under the law and it's cursed us. So how do we receive the blessing if we receive? So, so aren't these things contradictory? Paul knows that's what his audience is going to be thinking. He anticipates that. And so those are the two questions he's going to answer in our sermon text today. And so it's going to provide a convenient outline for us. We have a brief two-point sermon. And what we're looking at today is what was the purpose of the law? If it doesn't justify us, if it can't save us, then why did God give it? And as we said uh, during our call reader response, Paul is not here giving an exhaustive list of all the purposes of the law. You could go throughout the Bible. I think John Calvin came up with four primary purposes of the law. But as it pertains to this particular issue, as it pertains to this controversy of justification, what is the most relevant answer to this question? Well, then why did God give them the Mosaic Covenant at all? Why did he give them law in the first place? And so Paul is going to answer that. If you would, read with me in Galatians chapter 3. We are going to begin in verse 19, and we will read through verse 26. I would ask you to follow along, if able, um, for these are the very words of God. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 
Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So what is the purpose of the law? Why did God give the law? Well, I've come up with two uh, words, two points to help us understand this. You could really think of them as two points, or really it's kind of one point, and they're just the different sides of the same coin, if you will. And here are the two purposes of the law that we'll go back in. The law is for guilting, and the law is for guiding. The law guilts us, and the law guides us. Now, I'll admit I'm not really using the word guilt appropriately according to English grammar here, but I wanted to have the alliteration because it helps us remember the point, so we're going to go with it. The law is for guilting, and the law is for guiding. So let's look at the first one. The law is for guilting. Go back with me to verse 19. He brings up this question that he knows is coming. Well, then, okay, why then the law? If it doesn't justify us, if it can't save us, if we've been misunderstanding it this whole time, then why did God give it at all? And Paul says something kind of interesting here because from our perspective, this is very ambiguous and it doesn't really answer the question. This is what he tells us. It was added because of transgressions. How do, what does that mean? Obviously, Paul believed that that was a sufficient answer for his audience and his cultural context. But for us, the, uh, 2,000 years removed in a different context, we, don't, we need something more specific. Well, what does it mean that the law was added for transgressions? Does it mean it was added to curb transgressions, to stop them? Does it mean it was added to increase them? Does it mean it was added to reveal them? What does it mean that the law was added for transgressions? Well, thankfully, we don't just have the book of Galatians in our New Testament. Paul talks about the law elsewhere, and I think he helps clarify this expression. So keep your marker here. We're going to take just a quick little trip through the book of Romans to help understand this. So turn with me to Romans chapter 3. I think Paul is going to elaborate for us in Romans what he meant when he said the law was added because of transgressions. Look at chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Romans chapter 3, 19 through 20. And Paul says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what I think we're going to see is when Paul says the law was added for transgressions, there's two things he means by that. that, that there's two meanings to that. And the first meaning is that the purpose of the law was to make our, us aware of our sin. It was to increase the knowledge of our sin, right? He says that in verse 19, the purpose of the law was to shut every human mouth. So the whole world is accountable to God. The whole world is under the law of God, and no one measures up. It shuts our mouths. The whole world is now held accountable to God because everyone in the world has broken his law. And then he tells us in verse 20, and that was its very purpose, it was not to justify you. No human being will be justified according to the law, but the, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Are you a sinner? And if you were to answer yes to that, I would ask you, how do you know you're a sinner? 
Says who? How do you know? It's a very easy answer. God has revealed his law to me and I don't measure up. How have you sinned? We call people to repent of their sins when you, on a daily basis, we we try to avoid sin, we repent from our sin. How do we know what sins to repent of? That's the purpose of the law. God gave us the law because of transgressions. He gave us the law to say, look at how disgusting you are. That's the purpose of the law. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. He, he elaborates on this in a couple more verses, but he's going to add to it. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Here's another way, another meaning to this phrase, the law was added because of transgressions. Romans chapter 5, look at verse 20. Romans 5 verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So what was another reason the law was added? It wasn't just to make you knowledgeable of your sin. It actually made you more sinful. The law of God actually increased your sin. You were more of a sinner once you knew about the law. Now, why and how? That is such a bizarre thing to hear, right? I mean, he goes on to give us the good news, but don't worry. The law, yes, it increased your sin, but God matched that far more abundantly with more grace. So even though your sin increased, the grace of God increased all the more. So you're okay still, but the purpose is the law increased your sin. How does it do that? Well, we're going to turn to Romans chapter 7 in just a minute, and I think he'll elaborate, but let me just give you my kind of layman's explanation of it. If any of you have children, I think you will understand, you've seen with your own eyes, how we as human beings in our fallen, corrupt nature, we love to push boundaries. We love to do what we know we're not supposed to do. It's in our nature. We want to break the rules. So guess what happens? The more rules you add, the more rules there are to break. So the more rules you have, the more rules you're going to break, and the more rules you break, you've now committed more sins. So our nature is so fallen and so corrupt, we just love to sin. We love to do what we know we're not supposed to do. So the more laws God gives us, the more boundaries we're going to push. And the more boundaries we push, the more we sin against him. So the law increased our sin. God gave us more rules to break. It doubled our law-breaking because we love to disobey. That's who we are. You don't have to teach your kids disobedience. You have to teach them obedience. Disobedience comes very naturally. That's just who we are. So by adding the law, by adding more laws to the picture, God, really not God, we then, through the law, increased our sin. We commandeered the law, we took the law, and we used it as a means to double our judgment. Paul, I think, basically says this much if you'll turn to Romans chapter 7. We're going to read a lengthy passage where he's going to include both of these things, both the law increasing my knowledge of sin and really increasing my sin in general. Romans chapter 7, look at verse 5 with me through 11. 
For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, right? That's what he's talking about. The law aroused our sinful passions. Once we had these boundaries, our sinful passions got excited. Oh, more laws to break. Now we're excited. Our sinful passions, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it, it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, this is not our sermon text, so I don't have time to go through and explain all of these different parts, but I, I hope that you're at least seeing the general summary here, that Paul says, through the law, two things happened. Number one, I became aware of just how sinful I am. I coveted all the time. I covet all the time, but until God said, that's wrong, I didn't know that was wrong. As a matter of fact, just as a brief side note, there was an, an atheist who is, uh, unfortunately died and went on to be with the Lord. Uh, he was a well-known atheist named Christopher Hitchens, and he is in this movie called Collision, where he uh, goes and does this like debate tour with a Christian pastor, and they go city to city and do these public debates on Christianity. And he, I don't remember if this made it into the film, but I watched all of the debates in their fullness, and he made an interesting point. He went through the Ten Commandments as an unbelieving pagan atheist, and he went through and talked about the ones that he thought were evil. He said some of the Ten Commandments are good, but some of them are evil. And one of his least favorite ones was the law against coveting, because his argument was that coveting is good for society. You look at what your neighbor has, and you want it, so what do you do? You go and you work hard for it. Even though realistically what it actually leads to is theft and jealousy and bitterness. But from his perspective, coveting fueled the economy. You should want your neighbor's wife. You should want your neighbor's car. You should want what your neighbor has, and that will force you to work hard for it, and now the economy is moving. He argued coveting is one of the highest virtues of the human race. So you see, without a divine word, we can twist all of our sinful passions and make them virtues. In order to truly know our sin, in order to truly know how sinful we are, we need a standard, an objective standard. And God intervenes with that objective standard and says, you can twist this all you want, but let me tell you, your coveting is sin. It increased our awareness, and like we talked about, our sin aroused by the law, it also increased our sin. So if you go back to our text in Galatians chapter 3, what did Paul mean when he said that the law was added for transgressions? Well, I think we can deduce from these other scriptures he meant really a couple of things. Number one, it revealed your sin to you. And number two, it actually increased your sin. God gave you the law. He gave us the law to make us more sinful and to have us see and realize just how sinful we really are. And then he, he, he breaks off and, and sort of talks about the establishment of the law and he says some very peculiar things. Look at what he goes on to say in, in verse uh, 19. 
after he says that the law was added because of transgressions, he says this, until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. This is an important point. We'll probably address it, address it more at the end. But this tells us something very important, that the law had a built-in expiration date. The law of God was not intended to be eternal, at least not the Mosaic expression of the law of God. The Mosaic covenant had an end date, right? It was put in place and it was supposed to have fruit until the seed, until the Abrahamic covenant found its fulfillment. And this is important because we discussed, I can't remember if it was last week or the week before, but we talked about how, you know, right, what did Paul say earlier? He says that a law, a covenant which comes afterward cannot nullify the covenant beforehand. And here's what I was afraid many people were thinking. That sounds exactly like what the new covenant did to the old. Right? Didn't the new covenant come in and cancel the old? Didn't the new covenant come in and say, goodbye, adios, get away with the old? Well, no, the reason it didn't, the reason we shouldn't read it that way is because the old programmed the new covenant to come in and do this. So when the new covenant replaced the old, it wasn't contradicting it. It wasn't, it was simply fulfilling it. It'd be like if you signed a contract at work for 10 years, I will, I will do this for 10 years. And then at the end of that 10 years, you sign a new contract. The new one didn't come in and contradict the old, but the old one found its fulfillment. It, 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 it released, it was over. And that's what Jesus meant in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The law had a temporary phase, and Jesus did not come against the law. This stuff is bad, you should follow me instead. No, the law is good and holy and just, but its whole purpose was to expire at the coming of Christ. So Christ came and fulfilled the law and established something new. But then he goes on to say something far more peculiar than that. And he says that this temporary law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And then he, so almost, almost as a side note, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So you're probably wondering, what does all this mean? And I've, I've got the perfect answer for you. I don't know. I don't have a clue. I don't know what this means. As a matter of fact, as I was doing my studies, uh, I found one uh, biblical commentator who argued, because here's, let me take a step back. Here's why it's peculiar. He, he argues that the law was put in place through angels. Nothing in Exodus says anything about that. Like the law was put in place by God and Moses. What, what about the angels? And then he goes on to talk about this intermediary. Who's that? Is he talking about Jesus? Some people say it was Jesus, and Jesus was actually on Mount Sinai with Moses. Some people say, no, Moses was the intermediary. But then he goes on to add, well, by the way, an intermediary implies there's more than one party here, but God is one. What does it mean that God is one in this context? Does it mean that the monotheistic single God, or does it mean that God has one harmonious purpose? Because we see that phrase used that way in Scripture in both accounts. So what does it mean that the law is put in place through angels? Who's the intermediary? Why does he say God is one in this text? And how does all of this fit into the overall argument? I don't know. But here's the funny part. No one does. There's all these different debates. One scholar argued that he, could, he, he interacted with other scholars and they came up with seven different plausible interpretations of putting all these together. One, one scholar, seriously, not as a joke, argued you could come up with over 300 combinations that would all fit the context. So let me just briefly share with you what I think this means. But if you disagree with me, like most time, that's okay. 
Uh, but here's the good news before I share that, though. Nobody argues, no matter how you interpret this, no matter how you think this fits in, it will not change your overall understanding of what Paul's getting at. Of all the different interpretations we see, not a single one ends up with a different conclusion when answering this question, why then the law? No one. Everyone comes to the same conclusion about why the law was given. So this is a bit of a side note for Paul that probably was really important to his Jewish audience and maybe has just lost something. What I think is happening is I think that, that there were as a heavenly host of angels present at the giving of the law, which, which consecrated it and give it more witnesses, a more holy witness. And it might concern you that we don't read anything about the angels' presence in the Old Testament. But just know, Paul was not making this up. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2 mentions that the law was given through angels. And Stephen, the first Christian martyr in the book of Acts chapter 7, before Stephen is stoned, he also tells the Jews, you know that the law was given to us through angels. And none of these people are chastised for this. They speak as if this is just common Jewish knowledge. So we don't see this in the Old Testament, but it was likely just an oral tradition passed down by the Jews that was true and that made its way into the New Testament. But I think that, I don't know what form the angels took. Were they present and people could see them? Were they invisible? But somehow angels were used in inaugurating the Old Covenant. And Moses, I think, is the mediator. Moses was the mediator between God and men of that Old Covenant and the idea that, uh, well, God is one, I think what Paul is talking about here is that the Old Covenant was not in contradiction to the Abrahamic Covenant because God is one. We see this, by the way, uh, in John chapter 10 was the most famous chapter where Jesus says, I and the Father are one, and that has nothing to do with the Trinity. As a matter of fact, if it did, it would actually be a Trinitarian heresy. Uh, it is, that is not about the Trinity. The context of that is that Jesus is saying, me and the Father are on the same plan of how we will save God's people. So God is one, we are one. And as a matter of fact, Jesus later on goes on to say in his high priestly prayer in the book of John, when he prays for his disciples, he prays that they will be one just as you and I are one. Was he praying that the disciples would become a Trinity? No. So when, when, when Jesus talks about being one with God or God being one, sometimes that's about monotheism. There's only one God. But sometimes it's about God's consistent, unchanging purposes. And that's what I think he's saying here. So everyone knew right from the get-go that even though there was an intermediary in the Mosaic Covenant, which there wasn't in the Abrahamic, this was not outside the plan. God is one. This was all according to plan. But again, you can... You can interpret it differently, that's okay. But here's the point I want us to take from verses 19 and 20. Why was the law given? Because of transgressions. This holy law which came through Moses and through the angels was given so that you would both see your sin and increase in your sin. And so that raises a logical question in verse 21. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness indeed would be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So this is kind of where our point about guilting us really reaches full fruition. If the law could be your righteousness, then that's what God would have done. But that, that was never the point of the law. Rather, not to make us righteous, verse 21, but what does verse 22 say? Just like we saw in Romans 3, it imprisoned everyone under sin. 
So this is what I mean by guilt. The law was given for transgressions. The law imprisons us under our sin. When you think of guilt, the, uh, the analogy, the metaphor that Paul gives is prison. The law is your prison. The law is your jail cell. The law has locked you in prison and condemned you, and it's done this with every person in human history. That's why the law was given. It was given to throw you in jail, to imprison you. The law is your guilt. The law guilts you. It makes you realize you're a sinner, and it helps you realize just how sinful you actually are. The law guilts you. Well, this is somewhat of a cliche, but it's really, really important for us to to talk about anyway. I think a great metaphor for this is that the law is like a mirror. A mirror exposes, it helps you see just how dirty your face actually is. Now, this doesn't account for the law increasing your trespasses, but at least for this aspect of it, the law reveals how sinful you are. It imprisons you. That's what a mirror does. You think you're clean. You look in a mirror and realize, ooh, I was wrong. I'm very messy. That's the purpose of the law. And this is why the the law is so important, I would argue, in terms of evangelism. Because the good news of the gospel, and we're going to get to this in a minute. This is point number two. But the good news of the gospel isn't good news until you understand the bad news. I talked all the time about when I used to do evangelism at the college level, how many people, we'd stop and ask them, if you were to die today, what would happen and why do you think that? And they'd say, I think I would go to heaven, I think that I'm with God. And say, okay, well, why do you think that? Almost every single time, their answer, because I'm a pretty good person. Why would God judge a nice guy like me? I'm, I'm not a looter and a rioter. I'm not uh, killing people. I'm not robbing banks. I'm not saluting Hitler. Like, I'm, I'm a nice guy. We don't think we're that dirty. Everyone left to themselves thinks that they're a pretty good person. And so the law of God comes along to expose to you, no, you're not. You are not a good person. We all have a natural pride that lives within us, and it's a pride that a good, healthy dose of the law can cure. Nothing like a good, healthy dose of God's law to humble all of us dead in our tracks, to imprison us and shut our mouths. You think you're a good person? You read through the Old Testament, you read through the New Testament, establish God's law, and see how often you follow it on a day-to-day basis. See how you measure up to the holiness of God. When, when all of these bad people around us, like bank robbers and rapists, when they become our standard of righteousness, it's easy to look good. But when God is your standard of righteousness, when his revealed law is your standard of righteousness, you see you're worthless. The law is a mirror and it exposes to you, you have no hope. And so that leads us to the second point. The important point that while the law is our guilt, it guilts us, it holds us accountable for our sin, it imprisons us, it's also our guide. Once it puts us in that hopeless place, the law then turns and shows us, here's how you get out. Right? He goes on, Paul goes on to say this in verse 23 and 24. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. 
Now, I don't know what translation you might be reading from. The ESV says guardian. Some translations say schoolmaster. Some translations say tutor. Here's what's going on. Here's how Paul describes, describes the law. The word in Greek is actually where we get our word pedagogy from. And pedagogy is the art of teaching. So the law is some kind of teacher. It's some kind of instructor. Uh, well, probably the, the, the cultural equivalent would be it wasn't uncommon for people in the first century to have one of their slaves, one of their servants, basically raise their children for them. And then once their children got to a certain age, then they were kind of off to their own. This would be like uh, kind of like a housemaid, only a little bit more glorified, right? Doesn't just clean and take care of your kids, but actually teaches them and educates them. So the law is like this tutor. It's like a school teacher. It's a guardian, and it teaches you about how to get out of this prison you're in. The same law that imprisoned you is the same law that is your guardian, your tutor, and it points you to the right thing. That's why he says back in verse 22 that the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. What the law does is it cuts off self-righteousness and then in so doing, it leaves you with only one path to God. By cutting you off at, at that point, you were trying to go down the path of self-righteousness. You were trying to earn it. You thought, I'm so good. God would never judge a nice person like me. The law cuts that road off, barricades you there, and then it then, by doing so, turns you down the only other path where you can receive righteousness, which is faith in Christ. So the law came to be your guardian. It came to guide you to Christ, to guide you to faith in Christ. By taking away your own righteousness, it then guides you to the true righteousness which is found in faith in Christ. And that's how this answers the question posed in 21. Right? What's Paul answering right now? Is the law contrary to the promises of God? In other words, does the law of Moses contradict the promise that God gave to Abraham? And we see not only does it not contradict it, it serves it beautifully. And let's conclude by putting these pieces together. So God promised to Abraham 430 years before the law. He promised to Abraham, one day I'm going to save the world through faith in Jesus. He didn't use those words, but that's how Paul interpreted it for us last week. That's what the promise meant. One day I'm going to save the world through faith in Jesus. And here is a potential obstacle to the fulfillment of that plan. If we've got a bunch of people running around the world who don't think they need Jesus. How is God going to save the world through faith in Christ if nobody wants Christ? So you see, the law is best friends with the promises given to Abraham. It's, 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 their, it's its partner. It's side by side. God promised to save the world through faith in Christ Jesus. And then 430 years later, he gave us this holy law. And that would actually accelerate that process. Because the second you're prone to think you can do this on your own, the second you're prone to think I can get to heaven apart from Christ, the law comes in and says, no, 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 go back to Christ. You cannot do this. Go back to Christ. The law greased the skids on the Abrahamic covenant. It helped it. It brought us closer to Christ by reminding us you desperately need him. God promised to save the world by faith in Christ Jesus. And the second you're prone to not have faith in Christ Jesus, look at the law and see you stand condemned. To go back to the mirror analogy, 
The mirror exposes the dirt on your face. But guess what the mirror can't do? It can't clean that dirt. So the mirror really is serving two purposes. It's not only reflecting your sinfulness, but it's also showing you you need a shower. You need water. You need to be cleansed. So the mirror actually guides you to water. In the same way the law exposes your sin, imprisons you in guilt, and in so doing it says, so go to the water. Go be cleansed. Go find forgiveness. As you will see, the law cannot forgive you. But Christ is the living water. All who come to him will never thirst. All who are washed in his blood will be made white as snow. So we see that the law was given for transgressions. The law increased your sin. The law guilts you. It condemns you. But then it also turns you to Christ so that the Abrahamic promise can finally be fulfilled that God would save the world by faith in Christ. The law brings you. It literally convicts you into the arms of Christ. It guilts you into his arms. You run to Christ knowing, I have no hope in myself. I can't do this. And Jesus says, that's the point. That's the point. So in conclusion, Paul concludes in verse 25 and 26, which by the way, actually, let me just do one side note. Uh, I, I would invite everyone to, we've, we've launched Sunday school again, and I would invite everyone to come because uh, we, we, we had an introduction to Martin Luther Day, and it was amazing how well it fit with the sermon, because this is exactly what Luther himself experienced. Uh, just, to, just to briefly summarize the Sunday school plan for you today, we, we, we learned that Luther originally began as a lawyer. He was studying law, and then after a kind of a, a uh, near-death incident, dedicated his life to God and decided to become a monk. And so he took all of those skills he learned studying secular law, and then he applied them and started studying God's law. And guess what happened to Martin Luther the second he started studying the law of God? He was overcome with guilt. He studied the law of God in fullness and in depth for the first time and said, what hope do I have? I live in a religious system that's telling me I need to earn my salvation and work and please God, but when I hold myself up according to the law, no matter how hard I work, I fall desperately short. And that's the law working exactly as the law was intended to work. That's exactly how the process happens. You look to God's law and you are overcome with guilt and shame. I am a sinner. I am wretched. I have fallen short. I have no hope in myself. And that's when Jesus steps in and says, good, the law did its job. Now come find the grace you're looking for. Come find in me the mercy and grace that the law does not provide. That's why John 1, 17, when John gives his epic prologue of Jesus, he says the law came through Moses, but grace came through Jesus Christ. The law is not your grace. The law turns you to your grace. Martin Luther experienced exactly what all of us should. Conviction under the holy law of God, which we then turn and run by faith to Christ Jesus. And that's why we say verse 25 and 26, now that faith has come, faith here is being used as a large category of Christ, the Christian faith, the new covenant. Now that Christ and the Christian faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. It is your faith that brings you into God's family, not the law. 
It is your faith that forgives you of your sins, not the law. But the law brings you to faith. The law convicts us of our sin. It exposes our sin. And in the process, we then turn and run to Christ and are justified freely by His grace through our faith. 